Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, where the Lord has led us at this time to make a study of these epistles of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. We have covered the first nine verses. We look at the first two verses as his salutation, where Peter addresses his audience in five provinces of the Roman Empire in what is now modern Turkey. In verses 3 through 5, we have 13 phrases describing God's abundant mercies toward us. In verses 6 through 9 was an encouragement to those scattered strangers to be strong in faith and that the trials that were coming upon them were sent by the Lord and that they had commendably responded to them thus far by rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory and that when Jesus Christ appeared, they would receive the full end of their faith, even the salvation of their souls. Verse 9. I read to you verses 10 through 12. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify. When it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Amen and amen. Amen. The things the angels desire to look into are the things that were ministered by the Old Testament prophets. They were the obscure version of the gospel. The gospel is glad tidings of good things. The word gospel, an old English word, goad spell, is good news or glad tidings. And we want to remember that when we come across the word gospel, it's used in the New Testament. It's prophesied only in the Old Testament to describe the good news and glad tidings about the Lord Jesus Christ, salvation by His bloody cross, and heaven to follow as the purchase of His sacrifice and the inheritance God's given to us. The gospel. We want to remember that wonderful word. We're going to have it here in these three verses. And we're going to have the word things used a number of times because the things are the details of the gospel. And we want to rejoice in those things. We come to... This 10th verse, we have a complete sentence here in verses 10 and 11, and we have a sentence in verse 12. And with those sentences, we are going to commit ourselves today. Let's start with the first words of verse 10. Of which salvation? Of which salvation tells us that there's a salvation in context that has already been described, and it's that salvation that Peter still has in mind. And the salvation that is in context is final salvation, glorification at Christ's coming and being with Him forever, 
primarily. Now Peter is going to pull in other things as verse 11 tells us when it says the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. I want to explain it this way to you and I hope that it helps. The salvation is final phase salvation. Let me show you. Verse 9 was the end of your faith. It wasn't the intermediate part of your faith or the intermediate reward for your faith. It was the end of your faith and the salvation of your souls. We understood that from last Sunday as being final phase of salvation, meaning when Jesus Christ comes back and resurrects our bodies if we're dead and takes us into heaven, glorifies us with new bodies, and we are forever with the Lord. That's the final phase of salvation. And we see that in verse 9, and we looked at that last Lord's Day. But let's back all the way up to verse 3, where we had in verse 3 a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The issue in this first half of the first chapter of 1 Peter is the resurrection of the dead, like the Lord Jesus Christ had. And we have a lively hope because we believe in Him, and God, having raised Him from the dead and putting Him at His own right hand, has given us a lively hope. That is the issue. The hope of our own resurrection. The hope of being with Christ in heaven. The hope based on the glory that Christ already has in heaven, which will be our glorification. Verse 4 describes it as our inheritance reserved in heaven for them. In the fourth verse, that is all final phase. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It hasn't been revealed yet when Peter wrote these words. So these verses are telling us the salvation under consideration is the final phase of salvation, Jesus Christ's return, our glorification, and being with Him in heaven. Verse 7 ends with the words, at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Your faith will find its final praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 refers to the sufferings of Christ and the glory that shall follow. And verses 20 and 21 tell us that Jesus was raised up from the dead in verse 21 and God gave Him glory. And verse 17 refers to the judgment. If He call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. You're sojourning now, but there's a time of judgment coming. Everything is looking toward the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the appearing of Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verse 13 is about the revelation of Jesus Christ because it refers to grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, that is grace that is still yet to come, grace they don't have yet. Now they've already realized great aspects and degrees of God's grace but there's more to come. So, when we open up and, and look at verse 10, of which salvation, that salvation has already been identified and its final phase salvation, meaning Christ's return, His appearing, our glorification, our resurrection if we're dead, and being forever with the Lord. However, verse 11 says that these prophets, and verse 10 and 11 are one sentence and they're closely tied together, 
This salvation includes the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. We only get to heaven because Christ died for us. Jesus went to heaven 40 days after He rose from the dead, and He's been there ever since, and He was given glory then. Jesus Christ got His glory at His ascension when He was crowned with honor and glory. So, And we participate with Him in a in a legal way, and we participate with Him in a vital way after we're born again, because the Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that we have come unto Mount Zion, the spirits of just men made perfect, an innumerable company of angels, and the blood of Christ that speaketh better things than that of Abel. We are connected so closely that the sufferings of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross, and the glory that should follow began immediately with Jesus ascending into heaven and being given that glory first as the proof that we're going to get that same glory. If we suffer like He suffered, we'll be glorified with Him. Romans 8.17 He suffered, He's received glory, and we are just part of a long trail of saints that have died since the time of Jesus Christ and we will get glory, but it's all pushing out toward the future when Jesus will appear and we will receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. But the glory began when Jesus rose up into heaven and sat down at God's right hand and was crowned with glory and honor, as Hebrews 2.9 teaches us. What, I'm tr- what I want to save you from, and that is the fact that the gospel is a glorious period itself. This time that we live in on earth, and it's, it's called the day of salvation. Second Corinthians chapter six and verse two. It's called the, the time of salvation. It's called, while it is called today in Hebrews chapters three and four, that is all well and good in those places. But as I have just shown you from the context here, it's primarily talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of which salvation? The final phase of salvation, the glory that is going to be revealed in God's children with the full manifestation and revelation of God's grace toward them. Did the prophets of the Old Testament talk about the final phase of salvation? Did they? Look at Job 19 with me. Hopefully these words will sound familiar. If I was to start saying to you, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Does that ring any bells? That's Job. These scattered strangers, and I've explained to you that they are, they were third class citizens in what we would call Turkey today because they were Jews and because they weren't just Jews, they were Christian Jews. They were converted Jews. They were third class citizens and they were being persecuted and they were suffering and they were at this time enduring heaviness through manifold tribulations, all of which I explained to you last Lord's Day. The greatest hope the greatest balm, the greatest comfort, the greatest salve that can ever be given to someone suffering in this life is what we just heard about from Benjamin who gave his life there in 17th century England. And that's the hope of eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven. And so the Apostle Peter is encouraging them toward keeping their view on heaven and they would be able to endure cheerfully the things of this life. And Job's going to show us that. In Job chapter 19, Job 19, verse 25. Now, what kind of a situation is Job in? Is he enduring some heaviness? 
Does he have manifold tribulations going on in his life and manifold temptations? Beyond description almost. His physical health is gone. His family is gone. His wife is encouraging him to become a pagan and curse God and die. All of his assets are gone. And here's what he has to say. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Wow! This, this book was written first in the Old Testament. This book comes before Genesis in timing because Job and Elihu existed long before Moses wrote. Because there's no mention of Israel in this book at all. We understand because of Buzz being mentioned here that this is a relative of Abraham. And he wrote early. Job knew that he had a Redeemer that was then alive in heaven who was the Word of God. Not the Lord Jesus Christ but the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ at that time, because that was the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was alive, that He was coming, that He would be on the earth, and that Job's body, though after the worms ate his skin, and they ate everything else, do all you children know what happens to a body in the ground? The worms eat it. And Job knew that. And Job said, though the worms come and eat my skin, in verse 26, and after that, those worms eat my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Though the worms carry my flesh off, and though the robins eat the worms, and I'll stop this time. I'll show you some discretion. Go home and mark it on your calendars. Though my flesh is taken away by worms, and then the robins that eat the worms, in that flesh... I shall see God. I shall see for myself, verse 27, mine eyes shall behold. See, the worms are going to go for your eyes first because they're nice and juicy, children. My eyes shall see Him, verse 27, and there'll not be another man's eyes, though my reins be consumed within me. Though I am being destroyed, and though when I die... My reins and my ability to direct and control my life are gone. God will put my body back together and I shall see Him. That was known in the Old Testament. Of which salvation the prophets. This is a wonderful prophecy. This is a prophecy of Job describing what's going to happen to him. Praise the Lord this was known so early on. This, at this point in time, this is like oral theology and prophecy that's been given to Job by the grace of God. He knew this. Even in the midst of a lot of complaining in these chapters about how God was treating him, and though there was a great deal of tribulations taking place in his life, and though he was under great heaviness, he still had a hope. He could say in these chapters, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Because though he slay me, if if these trials take and get worse, and they take my life away from me, I know that I will get my life back. And so, Benjamin, as we heard about this morning, 
And so William, that we heard about last Lord's Day morning, because they had this kind of hope. Brethren, do you have this kind of hope? You know, some disease or an accident is going to get you. It's going to get all of us. But if we feed our souls and our hearts and our minds with passages like this, let it come. Lord, we trust Thee. Though You slay me, yet will I trust Thee. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, can we understand these words better than Job? When Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth in the present tense, did he know about the Lord Jesus Christ in the fullness like we do? Not even close. He just knew that God had a Redeemer for him, and it was going to be the Word that was going to be made flesh in the fullness of time, but had not yet done so. But he did so 2,000 years ago, and we know about him. We know his mother's name. We know his legal father's name. We know his maternal great-grandfather. It's all listed here. We have a genealogy of Mary that goes all the way back to Adam. We have a genealogy of Joseph, his legal father, that goes all the way back to Abraham. Praise God do we know about him. When Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth, what do you think? We know so much more. Where is your Redeemer sitting right now? At the right hand of God. Who's around his throne? Okay, let's, I'll preach Romans, Revelation 4 and 5 again right now. Who's around his throne? Four beasts. Four and twenty elders. You know what it looks like. You know there's a sea of crystal there. You know he looks like a lamb slain in some respects. You know he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know his brothers and sisters' names. You know when they got converted at his resurrection. You know that he liked to fish. You know that he knew how to cook fish. Because he baked fish. He had fish fillets for the disciples when they got to shore. You know so much about your Redeemer. He doesn't die like any other Redeemer. He's a priest forever after the order of Oh, That sounded right. That sounds like a church that knows their Redeemer. Praise the Lord. You know the order of priesthood He has. Do you understand how much you know about your Redeemer? Do you know how little Job knew? When he used the present tense, he's only referring to the divine nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not yet know about the incarnation. Except he he just knew that it was going to happen. He didn't know the details. He said that he would stand upon the earth. Oh, we're so blessed. We're so blessed. Did they know about the final phase of salvation in the Old Testament? They knew all the way back in the book of Job. Did 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 Abraham know about the final phase of salvation? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham wasn't looking for anything in this world. He was looking for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for a what kind of a country? A heavenly country. He was looking for heaven. And heaven is uh, named after Abraham, isn't it? In some respects called the Abraham's bosom. Because that's where Lazarus, the beggar, went. Look at Genesis 49 and verse 10. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Can we find some reference to the final phase of salvation way back there? Of which salvation? The prophets. Yes, I want to show you. Let's just make sure that we understand that they knew something big was going to happen in the future. 
Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. He has his sons around his bed. And he goes from oldest to youngest. This is very interesting reading. As he blesses and curses his twelve sons based on, in part, how they had lived during their lives. But he gets to Judah, number four son, who is the tribe, the father of the tribe from which Jesus would descend. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means Judah would have the kings of Israel. The scepter shall not depart from Judah and a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Jesus is going to gather together all the people of God. This isn't just the Israelites. This is the the Jews and the Gentiles that are God's elect. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus would say, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. John 10, 16. Then in John chapter 11, as John explains Caiaphas' prophecy, he explains that all the children of God will be gathered together by this Shiloh. And when's he going to get us all together? When the last one is born into this world and then born again, and God chooses to take him or have him be here when Jesus Christ returns, and all of us, most of us are in heaven already, most of God's elect are already in heaven, there's some still left on earth, he will gather together in one all the elect of God. It's described in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He will get us all together. Praise his glorious name. Look at Psalm 17. Psalm 17 with me. I want to... Make sure you understand that the Old Testament prophets, David was a prophet. You read that last night, didn't you, in Acts chapter 2? As Peter explained that David's words in Psalm 16, by inductive reasoning, were about the Lord Jesus Christ, because David said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And Peter said, we know that David's body's right over there. And he's seen corruption. But David was a prophet, so David must have been speaking about someone else. Oh, yes, he was. He was speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ that Peter had seen raised from the dead. Psalm 17, verse 14. David knew about men that are not the children of God. And they're described in verse 14. From men which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life. They're getting their heaven now, and what a miserable heaven it is. And whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. God gives them lots of good food in this life. They are full of children, they have big happy families, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, something totally different, verse 15. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I'm going to awake. Because when we die, we go to sleep in Jesus. And when we're resurrected, we awake. And we're going to have the likeness of Christ. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. David knew that a thousand years B.C. Praise the Lord. They knew about that phase of salvation that we call the final phase. I could turn you to other places by David and by Asaph. I'll direct you, though, over to Hosea. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. 
Hosea and the 13th chapter. Hosea 13. Let's see if you recognize these words. Verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? From Hosea 13, 14. Yes, they understood the final phase of salvation. More could be shown. Let's, let's keep moving or we'll, we'll never do what even I wanted to accomplish today. Verse 10 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Be excited about Job. Be excited about David. Abraham. Abraham's bosom. A heavenly country. A city that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Hosea. Prophesying the destruction of death. And God redeeming us from the power of the grave. These prophets. Peter is telling his audience of scattered strangers, Jews, living among Gentiles, that they had been blessed above the prophets of God. Because the prophets of God only knew obscurely what these people knew in detail. Because that's what these three verses are about. The prophets had spoken obscurely about these things. My beloved brethren, Peter is saying to them, But you know the details because we apostles have reported to you the facts that fulfill the obscure prophecies. Because they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw His miracles. They saw the pouring out of the Holy Ghost on the church. They saw Gentiles being converted and coming into the kingdom of God, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. They saw a resurrected man, the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw it all. And so they could report. The gospel is a report. Young people, our gospel is not a theory. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's news. It is good news. Goad spell. The gospel. It is news. And there were eyewitness reports after eyewitness report after eyewitness report having witnessed many infallible proofs. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. Many infallible proofs by eyewitnesses who put it down in writing and in the generation when it was written down, it could have been destroyed if it had not been true, but it wasn't destroyed. The enemies of the gospel said it turned the world upside down because it was based on many infallible proofs and we get to live on this side of it. What's an infallible proof? We ate and we drank with him. Spirits don't sit around and eat and drink. But Jesus wanted to show them he could eat and drink. Jesus tried to get Thomas to put his finger in the holes that were in his hands. That glorified body. Praise the Lord. These are the things that we believe in the prophets. could only tell about them obscurely. But these strangers know more than those prophets. You know, the prophets were an illustrious group of men to Jews. But here Peter is telling them, you know more. You know more. A prophet 
is a man that God reveals His will to, to speak that will to the church. And they existed until 70 A.D. There are no prophets anymore because prophecy would fail. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 8, there would be no more need for prophecy. There hasn't been a prophet since 70 A.D. because the more sure word of prophecy has come. We don't need a prophet. They had to have prophets in the early church because there wasn't a New Testament. So who was going to tell them New Testament doctrine when they didn't have a New Testament? The apostles and the prophets would tell them because they would be inspired directly from God to be able to answer questions. They would get a word of wisdom by the same Spirit, a word of knowledge. This is all described in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Those prophets, the gift of tongues, all those miraculous apostolic gifts of two sorts, there were miraculous signs and wonders to prove that fishermen were truly sent from God, and there were revelatory gifts that would reveal knowledge and wisdom and truth. Two kinds. One, they could take up serpents and not die. That's a miraculous wonder. Two, they would have the gift of prophecy, and they would be able to tell God's will when there wasn't yet written New Testament Scripture. But once that perfect New Testament Scripture arrived, then those gifts went away, just like Paul said they would in 1 Corinthians 13. There was no more need for them. So when we get to the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus, there's no description there of how to ordain a prophet. There's only two offices, and neither of them prophesy bishop and deacon, and they don't prophesy, they study the word. Their job is to read, give themselves to reading, exhortation and doctrine. There isn't anything in there about prophesying. Prophets went away. So whenever you run into a cult or a denomination or a church that says they have apostles, I've taught you that before, to be an apostle you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ personally with your own eyes. There aren't any and haven't been any since the Apostle Paul. Paul said he was the last one to see Christ. So if you run into a church or a cult or a denomination that has an apostle, you know they're not of God. And if they say they have a prophet, you know they're not of God. Because there haven't been any prophets. When you meet Seventh-day Adventists, they trust the prophetess, Ellen Harmon. Ellen Gould Harmon was her maiden name. Ellen White is her married name. You know, they read her books. We deny it all. We're talking about the prophets of God. The Old Testament had prophets. Who's the first prophet called a prophet in the Bible? Enoch. The Bible tells us he was the seventh from Adam. And he prophesied. And where is his prophecy found? In Genesis chapter 5 or Jude chapter 1? His prophecies in Jude 1. Well, now wait a minute. If he was the seventh from Adam, you mean his pro- his prophecy wasn't written down until Jude wrote it down. Well, how could Jude write down what Enoch said when Enoch went to heaven? Inspiration of God. It's not hard for you, is it? The Holy Spirit put the whole book together. How did Paul know the two names of the magicians of Pharaoh and use them in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when Moses didn't give them in all the books of from Genesis to Deuteronomy? By the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. What were their names, by the way? You know why I did that. I just needed to be encouraged again this morning. I'm very simple. When you know the Word of God, it encourages me. Janice and Jambres. Praise the Lord. Yes. Fulfilled prophecy. These prophets were wonderful. Fulfilled prophecy is, is a fabulous subject 
for preaching in its own right, and I've done that before in a series of messages called Fulfilled Prophecy, because fulfilled prophecy proves God, our God's unique greatness. Are there, are there eight chapters in the Bible that are dedicated by God to boast of His ability to forecast the future and then bring it to pass? They are found in what testament? Old? In what book? Isaiah. Chapters 41 through 48. They are wonderful indeed. We have a wonderful God. Jehovah is like no other. I am that I am. He declares the end from the beginning. And those things which have not been done and brings it to pass by His own power, there is no other God like Him. And that's His name. The fulfilled prophecy proves the inspiration of the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. It's the more sure word of prophecy and it proves the identity of real prophets. Because if someone says a word in the name of the Lord Jehovah and it doesn't come to pass even one time, The Bible says, don't be afraid of him because he's not from me. Because you can't make a single mistake as a prophet of God because God doesn't make mistakes. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Do you know how important it was to have prophets in the Old Testament? The Bible says when there's no vision from God, when God's will is not being revealed, the people are in a terrible condition. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But there were prophets that God raised up and sent to his people. Do you appreciate those men? Muslims, Muslims go to great pains to protect the honor of what they say is the greatest prophet ever, Muhammad. The illiterate, polygamous, traitor, T-R-A-D-E-R, of the Arabians. They protect Muhammad. They appreciate Muhammad who dictated the Koran. They say he's the greatest prophet ever. But the Koran doesn't have any prophecies. Right. <laughs> oh, are there any prophecies here? Yeah. It's full of prophecies. And one of my first and favorite prophecies is chapter 16 of Genesis. And it's about the Arabians themselves that they would always be fighting everyone else and everyone else would be fighting them. And Is there anything going on over there right now these days? Did you have to make a trip over there, brother? Genesis 16 says they would always be that way and they have always been that way. Do you love your prophets? You know, when Paul opens the book of Hebrews, the first thing he goes after is the prophets of the Old Testament. He says, God... This is how the book of Hebrews starts. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. Moses once fled Egypt in fear, but after he got ordained, was he afraid of Pharaoh when he came back into town? No. Elijah illustrated John the Baptist, and Jesus said that there was none greater than John the Baptist which means that Elijah was one great prophet of Israel, wasn't he? But what did Elisha ask for the day that Elijah was carried into heaven? A double portion of his spirit. Did he get a double portion of his spirit? Amen. I know, children. Elijah could raise the dead while Elijah was alive. Elisha raised the dead when Elisha was dead. That is a double portion of his spirit. 
You say, is that in the Bible? Second Kings 13, 21. Elisha's bones are down at the bottom of a grave. An army comes through there. A man's been killed. They toss him in the grave. And he lands on Elisha's bones and comes to life. One verse only. How many verses do you need for something like that? I only need one. I believe it. Do you love the prophets of God? Those men carried messages. You know, Elijah sat on top of a hilltop and the king knew that he was out there. And he sent out 50 men and their command, their chief to bring them in. And you know, they came to the foot of the hill that Elijah was sitting on and the captain said, man of God, come down. The king wants to see you. Elijah said, well, if I'm a man of God, then let fire fall from heaven and burn you and your 50 men up. And fire falls from heaven and burns up 50 men. The king sends out another captain with 50 men. The very same thing happens. Then he sends out a third set of 50 men. And that third captain got to the bottom of the hill and said, man of God, have mercy on me. Would you please, kindly, pretty please, come down and go with me? Okay. And he, you know, 42 children once came out and made fun of Elisha because he was bald. Elisha cursed them in the name of the Lord and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 children. You say, that's just not right. That was a wicked group of people that were there. It wasn't just those children. Their parents were wicked and that's exactly what happened to them because the prophets of God are great. Do you understand that in the history of this... Do you know there are people that have taken the state of Utah that live out there and they call themselves Mormons and they think that Joseph Smith was a prophet? The guy perjured himself in court. He was convicted of perjury. He was a peeper. That means he went around looking at stones, pretending he could tell your future. They call that a prophet? The Bible has prophets. Do you love the prophets of God? Do you appreciate? There's a whole sermon series preached about 11 years ago entitled The Prophets of God where we lift up the men of God that God has sent into this world to travel among the people of God. You know, the, the prophets of God were in Israel, the tiniest nation on earth, and bringing God's message to them. And we should be thankful. We have their writings, brethren. We have their writings. Do you understand that the book of Isaiah is a man that God raised up and ordained to do spectacular things and to reveal spectacular truth to the church of God? Do you love your Bible, including the Old Testament? They are the prophets. I haven't got past the fifth word of the tenth verse. 1 Peter 1.10, of which salvation? The prophets. Do you, you respect Jonah? I know you look at those four little chapters and you think Jonah was a mess. Some of the prophets of God have been a mess. But I want to remind you of something. By Jonah's preaching, a city of 2.5 million was saved from the fire of God. 2.5 million. You say, how did you arrive at that? Go look at an age distribution of our nation, five years of age and under, which the Bible says don't know their left hand from their right hand is 5% of the population. It was 120,000 in Nineveh. We come up to 2.5 million. Don't worry about it. It was a big city. Was it three days journey? Was it three days journey to get around that thing or to get through it? That's what the Bible says about it by the preaching of Jonah. Do you know what kind of, do you know what preacher that Jesus appealed to after he had been to some cities and preached the gospel? He said the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah it's going to be more tolerable for them and the, and the city of Sodom and Gomorrah than for this city that just heard me preach and didn't repent. Because the king of Nineveh 
put himself in sackcloth and ashes at the preaching of Jonah. That little four-chapter book, don't just make fun of Jonah. He didn't want to go preach. Many of God's preachers haven't wanted to go preach. The Lord just has a way of persuading them. And yes, he didn't like the Ninevites. And sometimes God's men have to preach to people they don't like. But they go ahead and do it anyway. And yes, he made himself a little box office, a little box seat up on a hillside so that he could watch the whole city get torched. He had his marshmallows pulled out. He was going to make s'mores of the people of Nineveh. But God spared them all. You say, well, he's a twisted man. Well, God uses twisted. Listen, God used a donkey one time or an ass. And God can use Jonah. But listen, when you, that's in the book. That's in the Bible. You have four chapters in there. And once God got his attention, he went into that city and he told them 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. You know, that, that's a risk. You're risking your life. He saved their lives. Thank you, Lord, for men like that. The prophets that we're talking about in this fifth word are the Old Testament prophets, for they did not see Jesus Christ in his glory clearly. There's no more of them. Have inquired and searched diligently. These prophets asked and dug to find out as much as they could. And I started off with that verse this morning, Matthew 13, 17, that says, there were many prophets and righteous men that desired to see these things of the New Testament, of Jesus standing there and doing miracles, and Jesus preaching the gospel. They desired to see the Son of God. They desired to hear the Son of God, but they didn't. So, 1 Peter 1.5 is telling, 1 Peter 1.10 is telling us that these prophets of the Old Testament inquired. That means they begged God. They asked God. You should read Daniel chapter 9 where Daniel begs God for more information about the regathering of Israel and the future state of that nation and he gets a prophecy of Messiah. They begged to know more. Do you know what I want to ask you and me? They who had so little and knew so little begged and searched because it says they inquired and searched diligently. Do we ask and do we search God's Word diligently? Do we want to know what? That is the details. And do we want to know the manner of timing? That is the when. Do we want to know what God has in store for us? Or are you just living your life waiting for your next promotion, wanting to make some more money and have some more fun? Let us crave the Word of God. Let us crave the information that's in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us know the what and what manner of time. There is so, there is nothing left. There is nothing left except for Satan to be loosed and there isn't any way to prove that he hasn't already been loosed from the bottomless pit to deceive the nations because of the wickedness of this world and their hatred of Christianity left to run before Christ returns. There are timed prophecies in the Bible and those timed prophecies are over. There are things that we should be looking into and greatly concerned about and filling our lives with instead of other things. Learn one thing right now about a man of God. You want to know something about a man of God? You want to know what a qualification is for the ministry? It's right there in the words, inquired and searched diligently. They absolutely crave understanding the Word of God. They ask questions. They want to know as much as they can. And they get in the Word of God and search. And if there's anyone sitting here that has that in their hearts, then Proverbs chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 tell you how to do it. It's like searching for hid treasure. 
It's crying out and calling upon God to show things to you. It's Psalm 119, verse 18. O Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. They read the Bible differently. The prophets of God. I'm not talking about anyone that you can look at right now. I am talking about the prophets and ministers of God. And the preachers of the New Testament, they love truth. They crave truth. They would gladly give up their lives to give themselves to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, and give themselves wholly to those things. Because they love truth, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. The grace wasn't going to come to them. The grace was going to come to the strangers scattered abroad that Peter is addressing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Do you understand that? They didn't get the details. They weren't told very much about it. But they wanted to know. And that's why Matthew 13 said there have been many prophets and righteous men that have desired to hear these things and to see these things, but they didn't hear them. They didn't see them. So Jesus turned to his fishermen and said, but blessed are your eyes for you see and your ears for you hear. And I'm telling you, how much do you have? I'm asking you to be thankful because blessed are your eyes and ears for all that God has revealed to you. They inquired and searched diligently. God chose progressive revelation throughout the pages of Scripture, meaning that very many living under the Old Testament did not know very much. But we know so much more. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 3, the first 12 verses, that until him, it was hid. It was hid from the eyes of men. The Apostle Paul was given a special view of the Gentiles being brought into the church that no one else knew as clearly as he did. Because God has practiced progressive revelation. And we want to pray that God will just keep right on practicing progressive revelation by revealing things to us in the latter days of the latter days that whatever we don't see and understand in Scripture, that He will open our eyes to see it. It is all by divine revelation. It is not by rationalization. And it is not by my diligence. It is not by intelligence. It is by God's gift. Pray for your pastor. That He'll open our eyes to see things that we haven't seen yet. And if there's something that we're practicing or believing that isn't true, then God open our eyes to it and we'll flush it. We only want your truth. We live on this side of the cross with a full canon of Scripture and men to teach it to us. We are so blessed. I didn't appreciate it in my younger days. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied. Praise God, they did their work, didn't they? They prophesied. They were prophets, their work was prophecy. Prophecy is the declaration of God's will to His church. It's not just future things. It's God's will to His church and they did it. Every God-called man had better be constantly about the business of revealing God's truth because that's what God sent him for. You better do everything in your power to protect the man of God to do his work of studying the Word of God and teaching you the Word of God. Do you remember what happened in Acts chapter 6? That church was so large and it grew so quickly, there were a great number of widows. Some of those widows were Israelites, Hebrews. Some of those widows were Greeks, called Grecians there. The Grecian widows started complaining and their families started complaining that they weren't being taken care of the way that the Jewish 
widows were being taken care of. And so the apostles threw up their hands and said, this is ridiculous for us to be waiting on tables and taking care of widows that are complaining about not getting treated fairly. Pick you out seven deacons that we will appoint over this business so that we can give ourselves the word of God and prayer. And so they picked out seven men that the apostles then ordained and put in charge of that business to go around and take care of the business matters of the church so that the pastor, the apostles, the prophets didn't have to do any of that junk. And I call it junk because it's very important, but it's junk in comparison to the Word of God and to prayer, the real work of a prophet and a pastor and apostle and an evangelist. That's what they're supposed to be doing is the Word of God. And brethren, it is so rampant today for pastors to be involved in so many other things than studying God's Word. And that's why there's a famine for the Word of God in the land. Ministers need to be in this book, in this book many hours a day, many many hours a week to learn it. But they prophesied. Forgive me for getting off track, but I'm really not off track very much, and it's good for you. Everything that I'm saying to you is good, because it's it's the work of prophets, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied. They did their work of the grace that should come unto you. Now, brethren, everything that comes from God toward us that is good is grace. Everything. But remember, this is primarily the final phase of salvation. You deserve things. You've earned things. You've earned the wages of sin, and the wages of sin is your death. Your spiritual death, your physical death, and your second death in the lake of fire. But the gift of God, the gift of eternal life, is by grace. I want you to notice that right here in verse 10, this second clause of verse 10 where it says, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. This grace was not going to come unto them. It was going to come unto, when I say them, I mean the prophets. The prophets were the ones that were doing the prophesying of the grace that should come unto you. Because Christ came in this generation. Because look at verses 20 and 21 of the same chapter. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. You're the ones that got to see Him. Now when it says that Jesus was manifest in the last times for you, did Jesus come to pay for the sins of Abraham? Yes. Did Jesus come to pay for the sins of Abel? Did Jesus come to pay for the sins of Enoch? Did Jesus come to pay for the sins of David? Yes, 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 yes. But he was manifest in the last time for these people to actually see him, to hear about him. First-hand reports from people who were eyewitnesses. So it was a little different for them. He was manifest. That means visibly revealed and discovered and shown to the Jewish nation in their generation. Back to verse 10. Who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Notice, the grace that should come unto you. And now, verse 13. I want to show you what it's talking about. It's it's the final phase of salvation. It's Jesus coming back and delivering us out of this world. Look at verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end. Hope to the end because you don't have it yet. Because if you have something, then you're not hoping for it. Romans chapter 8. Hope to the end for the grace. For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see we need that comparison right there to keep us on track that the grace under consideration is the final phase of Jesus appearing, resurrecting our bodies, and taking us into heaven. 
Because it calls it the grace that should come unto you in verse 10. And in verse 13, it is the grace that is to be brought unto you at the end, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the grace that's under consideration. You deserve the eternal death and torment in the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Instead, you will be declared the sons of God to the universe to share Christ's inheritance. That is unbelievable, stupendous, fabulous, incomprehensible information. That is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we, in our first Father, and in every breathing minute that you've had in this world, you have earned eternal death and torment in the lake of fire, but the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death, hell, the devil, and sin, and you're going to be joint heirs with Him of eternal inheritance as the sons of God, and declared to be the sons of God to the entire universe. Romans chapter 8 says the whole universe, in its entropy and all other principles that are causing it to decay, is moving toward one grand moment, and that grand moment is the manifestation of the sons of God. The whole universe is one big play stage, and on that stage is God exposing and revealing His glorious grace to His children and His wrath and His power on His enemies, both men and angels, and He will declare to the universe, these are my sons and my daughters. I've... I wish I knew how to preach it to you. These are my sons and my daughters. And the angels will stand back and sing songs and and that choir will burst into praise about God's love toward us. And Jesus dying for us because we will be elevated over the angels as the sons of God and they will be our servants forever. This is the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the grace that should come unto you. These prophets of the Old Testament, they wanted to know more. They wanted to see more. They begged God to show them more. They searched diligently to see if they could come up with more. What do you think Daniel was doing reading the book of Jeremiah? When he found out that 70 years was about to be fulfilled, and he begs God, will you show me how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and what's going to happen? And he got one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. Daniel chapter 9, the last four verses, there are 70 weeks determined upon your people until Messiah come. And you know, I've preached all those details to you, and there certainly isn't time to do it again right now. That should come unto you. Old Testament saints were saved also, but the grace in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come until that generation right here of 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, Jesus came for them as well, but they didn't get to see Him. He was manifested in this time, in the fullness of time. God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And there was a generation that got to see the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I wish I could have been part of that generation. I'm thankful to be part of this one. God chose us for this one. And do you know what Jesus said to Thomas? Blessed are they that get to see me and believe, but yea, rather more blessed are those that don't see me and believe. So we don't get to see Jesus, but we get to believe Him because we see Him with the eye of faith. And so 1 Peter 1.10 describes the grace that is going to come unto us by the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has earned for us by His death on the cross. And it is ours, and it is coming, and it puts everything in this life into the shade. Lord, forgive us for getting so caught up in the things of this life instead of the things of the next life. Verse 10, 
We know what salvation's under consideration. We are thankful for those Old Testament prophets, men like Job, that knew about the final phase of salvation. They asked God, they inquired, they searched diligently to know more about the details and more about the timing of what was coming. But they went ahead and prophesied what God gave them anyway. They put it down in writing. So we have Isaiah 53, we have Isaiah 52, 50, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 110, Psalm 2, and wherever else you want to go, Haggai chapter 2, my favorite prophecy about the glory of the latter house. All those prophecies were written down. They didn't know the details. They didn't know the timing, but they wrote them down anyway. They prophesied of the grace that should come unto, and let's pick this as a wonderful word, unto you. Unto you. Unto you. The population of the earth since creation is somewhere between 40 and 100 billion. They prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.